Welcome to Out of Focus, a new 74 podcast series hosted by Marva Chalar on imagining and creating in a world that has become increasingly obscure. COVID-19 has paralyzed humanity and the future of our planet is grim. Existing inequalities continue to worsen and the socio-political structures that brought us to today are now near collapse. How do you imagine, create, produce or even function when the future is out of focus? Tune in to Marva Chalar in conversation with leading artists, designers, architects and professionals from the creative industry. Welcome to Out of Focus. Today I have the great pleasure of hosting American contemporary artist, Tom Sachs. Tom is a self-proclaimed bricoleur working with the DIY spirit while engaging with high art, disposable consumer culture and everything in between. His sculptures have a deliberately scruffy quality using repurposed items with glue drips and duct tape and all joints and screws exposed. He calls these the scars of labor. Exploring the fetishization of commercial products and consumerism, some of his sculptures take major luxury brands and twist them out of their context, such as the Chanel guillotine and Hermes value meal. In recent years, however, these works have been overshadowed by Tom's growing affinity for anything space and NASA. In May 2012, he launched the innovative space program 2.0 Mars with a major exhibition at the Armory, offering a DIY expedition to Mars. It was a completely otherworldly fantasy crafted out of common materials, including everything from Mars landscapes to lounge bag to mission control. Since then, he has also collaborated with Nike on the Nike Craft Mars Yard shoe, inspired by his interactions with NASA scientists. They're now one of the most coveted sneakers on the planet, with a dead stock pair running for about $5,000 on resale platforms today. For the past 30 years, Tom has managed his amazing career from the same studio space on the Lower East Side of New York, located right across from the new museum. The rooms of the workshop are jammed with shelves and cubby holes and a vast inventory of art supplies and tools. It's a magical space where mechanic shop meets art studio. His works on the collections of many prestigious museums around the world, including MoMA and the Met, as well as Central Pompidou. Tom Sachs is represented by quite a few galleries, including Gagosian Gallery and Galerie Tadeus Ropak. I'm so thrilled to speak with my friend Tom Sachs today. I'm such a huge admirer of his work. Hi, Tom. I'm Marva. How are you? Pretty good, hanging in there. It is kind of funny because I was thinking about Out of Focus and the series and who to ask and who to be inspired from on how to navigate through a world that is becoming increasingly obscure. And the first people that came to my mind were you and Tom Dixon. And Tom was actually my first guest on the series. Oh. And speaking to him, I realized you worked together in the past and you are very fond of each other. Yes, well, you're talking about Big Tom. So I worked for Tom in 1987 and we stayed friends ever since. And he was and remains a teacher of mine. So I'm always forever living in his shadow. How have you been handling all this? How, what have you been doing in this period? I think it's pretty overwhelming where to start and it's almost impossible to not talk about politics because politics are within everything. However, mm -hmm. I'm going to use my sort of best asset, which is bricolage. That's mm -hmm. the thing that I do best, right? This has been a time of reflection for how we deal with others 
and ourselves and our resources and our privilege. But I think the thing that I can do best and the thing that any artist can do best is amplify what they know. And so for years, and this is something that Tom Dixon and I share, is we've always made things from the things in our situation. My first day of work with Tom, I was basically an intern and we broke into an abandoned school and we ripped up the parquet flooring and installed it in his studio. And um, this was a time during Thatcher's England when there wasn't a lot of money and people were reusing things around them. And today in COVID, we aren't going around as much in public, we're making do with the things that we have. And this is, I'm talking exactly. about my life here in New York, but I'm gonna guess that it's the same where you are in Istanbul. Exactly. Can you tell me a little bit about ISRU? So ISRU stands for In-Situ Resource Utilization. ISRU is a discipline founded by NASA in the 1950s, where we go to other worlds and we use the resources in those other worlds to provide our basics or to make the most of it. And like the dream ISRU project is a, a rocket that you send to another world, like let's just say Mars, um, a generation before your astronauts land there. And that so for uh, 20 years before the astronauts get there, this machine lands on Mars, it's got a little hydrogen in it, and mm -hmm. it takes the existing methane that's in situ on Mars, because Mars has got tons of methane, and it combines it with the hydrogen and it produces breathable air, drinkable water, and rocket fuel for a return trip home. That's the holy grail concept of ISRU. So then mm -hmm. the astronauts go there and they've got enough. They're already they set. Yeah, and, just, and you use time. Um, and so similarly, this is not so different from being on a camping trip. You try not to bring heavy stuff with you like water. You try and go to where water is and you get the water locally and you drink that or you always go from water to water, or you go, maybe you go, you bring a fishing pole and you try and eat the fish that you capture or collect berries. You use the resources that are in situ. But this concept applies not only to surviving in nature or the hostility of other worlds, but also our everyday lives. We're living in a time where we're trying to make the most of our resources. As those resources become scarcer and scarcer, mm -hmm. or as we become perhaps more aware of the impact on our natural environment that overproducing resources create, we have an opportunity to make the best of the things that are around us. So Tom Dixon and I and others make heirloom products. Like we make things that are meant to last. We're living in a time where things aren't meant to last. The best thing ever made arguably is an iPhone, but it's not an heirloom product. It's a subscription. It's part of a larger system. Like mm -hmm. The phone that you have now is obsolete by now or by this time next year. And another one's coming. So as good as the thing is, it's, it's sort of the apotheosis of made things because it's an extension of our mind and it can command others and produce incredible results and information. It's a truly cybernetic device. But the things that the studio makes are heirlooms. They're mm -hmm. made by hand. They're not made by computers. They're made in one place. They're not made by a global economy of a dozen or more nations producing this phone that's designed in California and made in a dozen countries and finally just assembled in China. Everything is made here in a much more old school way, the way things were made in the 19th century. And so ISRU 
means making the best of, of what you have at your disposal. And this is our channel on Instagram. And you can go look at, at Tom Sachs. You can watch uh, past episodes of ISRU and how to make a geodesic dome. Geodesic domes are the most efficient way to enclose space ever devised. So for the least amount of material, you can, you can enclose the most amount of space. We're teaching it at Massachusetts Institute of Technology in Cambridge, Massachusetts, but we're also teaching it online to our Instagram audience. And we're posting every day pictures that people send in. They just hashtag Tom Sachs ISRU. Mm -hmm. And following and, in line and, with Buckminster Fuller, right? Yeah, we are all his disciples. Uh, maybe most famously is Norman Foster is probably his most famous disciple. But these ideas are for everyone. Foster worked for Fuller, and he has clearly taken a lot of those ideas and expanded on them and taken them in a different direction. What about the concept of borrow? We take a lot of time to r repair our clothes. If you saw the shirt I'm wearing now, it's got patches on it. There's value to that. We're inspired by Japanese boro. Uh, cotton that's dyed with indigo blue, uh, mm -hmm. used and then worn and then repaired. And, and a great piece of boro could be a um, like a quilt that had the trousers of an ancestor. And Boros mm -hmm. can be multiple generations long and they show the heritage in a piece of fabric. And I think this is a philosophy that the studio has had for 30 years. And we are con we're continuing to develop and grow and share whatever your shoes or your jacket or even your car could have scars of its experience. Like, you know, maybe people even some people like buy their jeans pre-worn. We consider that a sinful act, but we love it. Then when you have a pair of blue jeans that you wore for a while, and maybe you tore them and you repaired them and you didn't repair it invisibly, but you repaired it with contrasting threads so that you show that repair or you show the wear in the knees, you show the, the history that you had with this stuff. And it's like, we like old people who have wrinkles because it shows the time that's passed on their, on the experience. their yeah. yeah. And there's an expression in the studio. We take pride in repairing our old things when they break. And if the thing isn't repairable, it probably wasn't the right thing to begin with. Yeah, and you also often mentioned the Japanese concept of mitate. So that is kind of like handmade, roughly translates, but there is a heritage of people using the wrong thing for the right reason, like mm -hmm. taking a piece of bamboo and making it into a vase or using a Korean soup bowl for a tea ceremony. So mm -hmm. something like something that's very low, something for soup, which is a lower thing than tea. Tea, you think you're going to have it in fancy porcelain, but no, in the traditional um, 16th century tea ceremony, the birth of the modern Japanese tea ceremony, that the author or the sort of leader of this school, this guy Senno Rikyu, takes a Korean tea bowl and serves it humbly serves this refined tea in it. It's, it's a misappropriation. It's using the wrong thing for the right reason. And he was kind of the master of this. And I think he predates the strategies of Marcel Duchamp using the ready-made thing instead of a purpose-made thing. I mean, the first thing is bricolage, of course. And I was thinking about the fact that we are all, you know, society at large, let's say, all around the world. We have been 
starting to make things ourselves again and you're the master of it so i thought it was interesting that you're ready and then of course the instagram posts are very helpful because you know everybody's looking to make something you know cooking from scratch growing something and i mean i was thinking about the idea that like was it easier for you because you were prepared i'm not as much of a prepper as i'd like to be for example all the uh fuel inside of my emergency generator and i got the best one right the most reliable one but i had it for hurricane sandy eight years ago and i never cleaned it out so it doesn't really produce electricity i've got this big expensive <laughs> thing i gotta i don't know flush it out with some solvent and fix it it's not ruined but it's not working in an emergency um but i so i um wasn't working in my studio i was working in the basement of my house and the basement's really small it's mostly the laundry room but that's plenty big for a couple of tables and i put a table saw in there years ago and i never used but i realized in this time of working in the basement how few things i really need to be happy and how almost everything beyond that becomes a burden more money more problems more keys more problems and i think that life's really short so in a way having a smaller but more dedicated toolbox for example i'm pledging now Merve, I want you and your listeners to hear this, that I do not believe in the table saw anymore. This is one thing I'm taking away from this quarantine time. All you need is a jigsaw. And it costs, I don't know, one-tenth, and it fits in the palm of your hand versus it's a whole table. That's, it's, they're safer. They're almost as accurate, and you can get the job done. And you <laughs> see more of what you did because they do create some error. And that little bit of error creates more evidence that you were there as, as, an, as the maker. And it's made and by that, hand. Yeah, and that, and that has value. And if you want to be perfect about it, you can take your time and you can make a perfect cut with a jigsaw. Absolutely, I've done it. All the stuff that you have in the studio, I mean, yeah. I was so fascinated when I visited. It's, it's an inventory with shop tools and art supplies and, and it's super yeah. organized. And now you don't need it. Well, less and less. And I think the most valuable thing to me in the studio by far is empty space. I would much rather have space than a tool. But you have would, a lot, right? To have space. Well, less than when you were here. We <laughs> This has been coming. I'm not even going to tell you the bill that I had to pay to remove all the shit when we threw out a whole <laughs> like street load of stuff onto the... So funny. You're the... really anti-consumerist. It's like people are buying things. You're getting less and less. Yeah, but I but I come by it honestly because I'm a huge consumer. I mean, I have the oh of the things that I do buy. I try and get the best one regardless of cost because I think it will. It know, last. If, I, if I believe it will last longer. So when I buy a new computer, I always kind of get the most you know, the fastest one with the biggest memory because it means I have to replace it less for further into the future. I think it's a better value no matter what it costs because the time of transferring the data from one computer to another is a job. Okay, then let's yeah. get into knowing. I mean, yeah. the second thing that I thought about is where we started making things. And then the other thing yeah. that we've been doing is getting rid of the clutter and organizing yeah. and knowing and You've been doing it for decades. Yeah. So knolling, for those of you who don't know, means uh, arranging like objects in parallel lines or 90-degree angles as a method of organizing the things in your space. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're 
really decluttering, but you're organizing in a way so it declutters the mind. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we need more space and it creates a sense of space, even if you really can't. But you know, if you've got 10 pencils all around the room and you put them together into one little pile instead of 10 messy piles, you create more space. And that's the essence of, of mm-hmm. knowing. And you put things on a grid, they tend to um, blend into each other. You have things that are off grid, they tend to make a mark and they tend to disrupt the, the mind. And, and that may be something to do on purpose, but it, but it, knowing is a way of uh, organizing, organizing and, and creating space because it's the most valuable thing. Real estate is only a measure of space over time. You mm-hmm. never really own anything, whether you own it or lease it or rent it or have a mortgage. You know, no matter how you slice it, it still has value. And um, it's knowing is a way of making the most of what you've got. Because you none already of us, have. None of us have enough space. No one. But I feel like it's, I mean, knowing helps in thinking clearly, obviously. So, I mean, the podcast yeah. is named Out of Focus. And it has been helping people focus somehow or deal with the unknown how did you deal with it with the unknown with the time of the global pandemic you mean yeah yeah well i'm gonna tell you about uh, it's been very very difficult for me and everyone around me it's been a a, a gigantic pain in the ass and expensive and frustrating (laughs) and scary and it continues to be but i'm going to talk about a couple of the things that have been really wonderful about it because I think we're all can share our, our war stories, but I think it's harder to to share some of the beautiful things that have come out of it. Mm-hmm. It's forced us to spend time facing our demons and only by facing our demons can we overcome them. It has helped us to spend some of us to spend time with our families and prioritize what mm-hmm. what really matters, especially as we lose people and we see how precious life is. It has helped us, some of us, to take a little bit extra time. I've got a two and a half year old son now, and I've spent a lot of time with him. You know, I spend time with him every day. And now that I'm going back to the studio a little more often, instead of spending time working in the basement of my house, I'm not seeing him as much. And I'm having some withdrawal experiences. I'm not really sure where my priorities lie. I'm a little confused because mm-hmm. the things feel like, I don't want to say they're getting back to normal, but there are some things that are back to normal. My studio is 90% of us are back. Um, mm-hmm. And we're all wearing masks. Um, and we're all distancing and not eating together. And it's like a shittier version of our old, <laughs> our old life, you know, awkward fear-based architecture, but it has also forced us to prioritize the things that are important for us to do. We can do less. So let's decide what are the things that you really want to do with your precious time and space? Like you're not going to live forever. How are you going to spend your, how are you going to spend what's left of your life? Me? Well, yeah. Yeah, I guess it has been the same kind of experience with us. It's spending a lot of time with family and actually getting to know your family in a different way. Yeah. Because even if you spend the entire day or a holiday together, you don't spend the consecutive uh, days and there's always entertainment and people coming and you're going somewhere and 
it has been a different time and getting to know each other really, yeah. which I really shared, which I really enjoyed. It has been kind of difficult, but you know, now I think, you know, we've all enjoyed it or learned a lot from it. I mean, I was wondering about the, your rituals that keep yeah. coming up, but you have rituals in your studio and also yeah. um, it comes up in some of the themes in your work. And I think rituals do help us deal with situations or it's a way of, you know, meeting people, communicating, overcoming our differences, or a way to deal with the world. I mean, do you think rituals can save us somehow? I do. I do think rituals can save us because they force us to be disciplined, right? So um, Jane Campion, the writer, said mm -hmm. um, that inspiration or muse or the flash of genius or whatever it's called is very shy. And you need three hours of warm up to get to that one hour. You got to sit at your desk mm -hmm. for three hours mm -hmm. for that one hour. Because, you know, that flash of inspiration, you never know when it's going to strike. But rarely yeah. does it strike when you first sit down. You kind of got to. And I have all these rituals and tricks that I do that, like, um, like I always know my environment. It sounds like procrastination, mm -hmm. but it's also calming your body and mind and clearing out the noise that prevents me from accessing my inspiration. So mm -hmm. I clean, I null, I put around, I build a little shelf for a tape measure that I use all the time so that I have that empty space being taken by something that I know I need all the time. I clear my desk, tabula rasa. I do it physically and I do it in my mind and that takes some time. And then I've like created a, a nest or environment so that this magic information or spark or whatever you call it has a safe place to land. If I've got like noise and interruptions, I, there's no way I can get through. I'm just putting out fires. And I think a lot of us spend time um, with busy work. So whether it's on purpose or by accident, that's some psychotherapy stuff. I'm not going to get into that. We don't give ourselves enough space to allow the muse to connect with us and it and that's what ritual does is it forces us creates us you know you you wash your hands you do the ablutions before you pray you clean your body you do a purification ritual all like the big religions have a moment with water where you wash your hands or your passages or your face or whatever you sprinkle water because it has a purifying effect. So, uh, and that helps you get into it. I think it's, I think that's not enough. I think I, there are many more rituals. Like for example, my biggest ritual is output before input. Do not look at your cell phone first thing in the morning. Write in your journal, dance, touch clay, speak, sing, do something that's output so that you channel your eight hours of rest of your access to your subconscious mind. Your subconscious mind possesses all the power. It's the part of your mind where nothing makes sense, right? Dreams. You think about your dreams logically and you try and write them down. It's like all crazy stuff. So you want to access that. Don't block it by having input coming in. Oh, an email from Tom. Like, you know. The, and then the, you kill the, the inspiration. You don't need it first thing in the morning. It's not going to change your action. The, thing, the only thing that you can do is what's in, within you. And that's the most powerful thing that you have is what's within you. 
and to uh, to take a discipline and and I use the word ritual to say, okay, I'm gonna write in my journal first thing in the morning for five minutes. That's ritual is saying I'm gonna do that. And by the way, deciding the night before, first thing in the morning, you're too tired, you don't know what to do, like plan it in advance. Don't leave the morning up for decisions because that takes a lot of energy. Cue it up, have the paper, have the pencil, have the sneakers by the dance floor, sweep the dance floor, don't move furniture the night before. Whenever I knew you were the right person to speak to about this. I mean, it's, it's also the fact that you, you know, how you talk about, you know, working with, I mean, with, with manual labor and it's, it's almost like a meditation of clearing your mind, getting in the zone. Um, and yeah. I guess in order to do that, you need to have rituals in order to get yeah. into that, to, to that zone yeah. and working labor intensively is definitely liberating. Well, rituals are so important. I, mean, I think that's why people like prayer is a very common ritual. Like the first thing in the morning, people pray. And I mm-hmm. think that's very useful because it helps set your intentions for the day verbally and spiritually. Right. And, you know, if you make your prayer, however you do that, you're saying, this is the way I want the world to be, or this is what I'm giving thanks for. Or this is what I want to acknowledge, like whatever prayer means to you. There are different, like it means different things to different people. But the idea of taking a moment of reflection, again, that's output. It's it's not coming into you. It's coming out of you. You're giving thanks to whatever you believe. You know, it's also very important to be um, tender and loving to yourself and to remind you that you are worthy of your own love. And I don't mean to sound so new age about it, but you really are. You're worthy of this extra little bit of time, however busy you are. It'll come to you. It'll take you whether you want or not, but you have the opportunity to take it. You can always wake up one minute earlier. This is what a lot of people have discovered during the shutdown. So, I mean, at least it helped in that way. But, I mean, getting into why we got to this point, I mean, I, I don't know if it's directly related, but it's definitely related in my opinion is anti-consumerism mm. all of my questions relate to how visionary you are i mean it has been another important theme in your work and as early as 2002 before the mortgage crisis in 2008 you had the exhibition yeah. um, prada death camp and yeah and since then it has been for a long time but the economic growth uh, became the overriding preoccupation of the world i mean over the past like six or seven decades and we got consumerism instead of prosperity and Now yeah. we reach a point where our future is at stake. So we all yeah. have to become anti-consumerists um, in order to survive. I mean, did you see it coming or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, I this is something that I've seen coming for 35 years. Going back to when I met Tom, I was in architecture school and I thought that I should really spend my time making the world a better place. But I really felt like it was... And this isn't, I don't believe this anymore, but I think in 1987, 80, 90, in those years, I was thinking that the world was without redemption. And by redemption, I just meant there was no coming back from the from this period known as the Anthropocene, the time when mm-hmm. human beings affect the surface of the planet more than any external force like solar flares or meteorites or 
just mm-hmm. change in the natural patterns on the planet that come and go. I'm just going to spend what's left of this short life enjoying myself making stuff that I want. But, you know, like a, a properly guilty, uh, sentient person, I like my responsibility towards wanting the world to be a better place did not escape me entirely. I couldn't be selfish entirely. So slowly I kind of saw ways of finding value in things that are older rather than constantly making new. And that's why, you know, we are constantly making everything that we make, we make to last forever. So, and I know it's just art. I'm not making cars or buildings that much, but everything that we make by hand shows human touch. It's kind of a, uh, I think the idea is that if other people in industry take that as a philosophy, then we can start to make things that last longer. Or, or if we take old materials and repurpose them, then, then they can last longer. And I'm not talking about recycling. Recycling is very expensive and, and it's important to do it with our waste so we have less waste. But before we recycle, we need to make to reuse things like mitate, we're saying about the Japanese mm-hmm. tea ceremony. But before we reuse things, we simply must all make things that last longer so we don't need to make as much. Because if you start, if you keep making stuff with this exponential growth rate, you will consume natural resources more than they can replenish themselves. Mm -hmm. And you will reduce the natural environment like rainforests and other places where animals live. And as a result, those animals will not have places to live separate from us and they will live closer to us and we will share in their diseases. And you have, if you have enough incidents of contact with other animals, enough of them, you will get enough mutations to have bird flu mm-hmm. and SARS and COVID-19 and the next thing. And it's not crazy to imagine that we will recover from this round of COVID only to find a much more aggressive version that we can't even think of. It's not insane. Like we survived SARS, but this is like a cousin of it. Exactly. Um, it doesn't go away and it mutates again. I think, I mean, it's, it stands to reason if you have less natural environment, you're going to have more areas of interaction. So, and even if I'm wrong about that, you're going to have other things that go wrong, Mm -hmm. right? Not just forgetting about the respect for the beauty of nature that we all love. It's just about how we exist in nature. And, you know, one of the things that I learned is I went to the beach a lot during this time of COVID and water for the first time in my life, I'm 53. I'd never seen blue water in New York city. It was blue like the Caribbean. And I would see all kinds of animals washed up on the shore, like, you know, dead and alive. So dolphins. Yeah, we, we, saw, also we saw images dolphins of, in the Bosphorus. Right? When was the last time you saw that I know. in your life? But it also brings a lot of technology and an accelerated speed of transformation, and which I'm wary about. Um, and again, looking back at your work, I mean, for example, the boom boxes that you have been making for a while and how you glorify them in your work. I mean, they're music devices. But I mean, although we can access music so easily now with the help of technology, and now we are watching the digital transformation and the mayor of New York is speaking with Eric Schmidt and partnering with the Gates Foundation. And, you know, they think technology will save the world. And I mean, what are we what have we lost or losing in the way of convenience, do you think? I mean, how can we reevaluate and value what we, how can we set new values for progress? Well, I, I, I'm not exactly sure. I think that it's very exciting, the um, 
the digital world and the potential for it to change, for example, things like mass transportation. I think if we, you know, it, I don't know how we're going to get around the trolley problem. You know, you've got an autonomous vehicle, right? Artificial intelligence, it's driving the car down the road or the trolley and mm-hmm. it has to choose and there's an accident and it has to choose whether it kills oh, yeah, 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 the yeah. passenger of the car yeah. that, who's not driving or a pedestrian who's innocent. Yeah. There's an irreconcilable thing. You can say, well, you know, how many people are in the car? How old are those people? Yeah. How rich are those people? How talented are those people? Can they, are those all judgments that you can apply to this? And it's an, it's like an interesting intellectual problem. I don't think there's a clear answer. I think it's pretty complicated. Um, but I think that's going to be the big hurdle, whether when we whether we have electric cars, I mean, self-driving vehicles or not. But clearly with things like um, Waze, we have reduced our experience of traffic, right? With things like ride sharing, mm-hmm. we have the potential of reducing um, the amount of waste in on the roads, right? With like packages. And so we have the ability, we're beginning to develop the ability to be more efficient with our stuff and how we transport our stuff. And we are beginning to have the potential to get away from the petroleum cycle by using yeah. electricity, but then it's very complex because solar power is seems really far away still and nuclear power, we don't seem to have been able to demonstrate how, how to do it safely without being too greedy, right? Like you can do it. <laughs> so there are some um, good things that will come from technology. <laughs> I mean, no, I, I, think, I think technology is great. It's just about how we manage it. Yeah. Right. I think, and I think that the, so technology is always led and ethics have always trailed behind. We've never had a time when the, when the technology really led, it's always been the ethics of the lowest common denominator the fear and the, and the greed and the lack of generosity. And that's why I think it's so important that people spend time in nature because with appreciation of nature, there's appreciation for other things. If you spend time on the water, people in, on boats help each other. People in the desert help each other. People in the cities fuck each other over. Yeah. Because they're just disconnected from the natural experience. You will never see a boat in distress without everyone nearby doing everything they can to help them. You will always see people in cities begging for money and people walking right by them. Yeah, without even turning their head. You're right. And, and it's just a, it's a connection of nature. Yeah, but at the same time, I guess, um, turning into technologists in order to solve some of these things. I mean, like we're talking about rituals and yeah. how important they are. But at the same time, um, expecting technology to solve all of our problems is, is of course, also problematic. And I like yeah. that Dakenhart, the curator of Naguchi Museum, put it. I mean, he was describing you and you're between craft and technology and the archaic and the modern and the past and the future. And I think maybe that's where the world needs to be at the moment. I mean, not all digital, of course, and not nostalgic, but a hybrid state. Dakin often quotes Noguchi, and that's um, uh, technology is true development of old tradition. And that's, I have it painted on my ladder, on my fiberglass <laughs> ladder, because I always forget those exact words. I've painted in big four inch letters. So in a way, it's a, it's a 
it's a respect and incremental growth of, uh, of an old tradition. We've been working on this stuff for a long time. Mm-hmm. I think in a way technology will save us, but we have to do a lot of other stuff along with it. And we have to develop it truly and not and honestly and not dishonestly. And by being honest, I mean being honest with our lives, respecting the, the, the lives of others, the lives beyond ours. Like it's not just for, you're not building something for one lifetime. Big systems take many lifetimes. You know, it takes a hundred years to build a cathedral. It takes a dozen generations to get to another planet. If you want to go far like that, just, you can't do it overnight. Big projects take more time. And maybe we have a chance to reevaluate these things now. I hope, we need I hope it. so. I mean, I, we're all together traveling at 16,000 miles an hour through space. Either all of us are going or none of us are going. There's nothing else I can say in this podcast. <laughs> That's the perfect sentence to end. You're the best interviewer. I hope we can continue the conversation. Thanks for including me. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye.